passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. This is an audible companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, a book that goes into deep detail on every single wrestling event that's ever been held in Japan's most famous stadium. My name's Chris Charlton, and in this podcast, we take a look at a different year in Tokyo Dome history with a different guest each time. This time, we're looking at the year 2011, and joining me is Mike Simfavivi. Mike, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having me on. You know, you have a wonderful podcasting voice. Thank you. I'm a little bit husky um, because I've come under, I I went down with a cold last week. And then after that, I did uh, King of Pro Wrestling as well. So uh, I was doubly husky after that. So uh, yeah, that's turned into good, good podcasting. Good, good. Well, it, it ought to be a good day then because we have good balance because I'm also a little husky, not in voice, but, but mostly in size. (laughs) <laughs> okay right um you're you're in the middle of a hurricane as we're as we're recording this this is this works out well because like last episode that we recorded uh was in the middle of a typhoon my end so it's um it's bad weather all the way around but oh, so you need to have a nice thread that goes kind of throughout everything and I, I hope to everyone out there you don't hear a if you hear a ghost whistling through in the background that is just my my poor insulation and the these 50 mile per hour winds the end of this thing still trying to to, to make it through yeah right so for the people that are listening to this when it finally goes out in november we've probably managed to date the episode enough so that everybody knows uh, that we were pre-recording these things but uh but mike let's take it back to, to 2011 what was going along in mike sempervivi's life and uh and you in regards to wrestling in in 2011 oh my uh let's see it it would have been one year after my let's see i'm trying to think of everything that would have taken place my son was born in 2008 so there was the biggest thing probably going on in my life was trying to deal with a, a three-year-old. They always talk about the terrible twos, but no, three. Three is a vicious, vicious age. Yeah. And while that was going on, my, my wrestling world was was pretty much revolving around doing the Adam and Mike Big Audio Nightmare over at WrestlingObserver.com, which, depending on when one hears this podcast, uh, Adam and I are still doing that show. We, we make it easy by only doing one about every three months or so at this point. But uh, we were doing them quite on the reg uh, back in the day there, uh, usually two of them a week, where our focus was 100 percent pretty much on Japanese professional wrestling. That show had started as a Japanese pro wrestling and MMA show that evolved from the Parasu Power Hour, which was one of, if not. I guess the first Japanese wrestling podcast, an, an MMA podcast that was Keith Lipinski, Zach Arnold and I, and Brian Alvarez had opened up the Observer website or what now is the Wrestling Observer slash F4WOnline.com website in 2000 and 
Oof, I'm trying to think of when that was. Uh, 2005, I believe it was, and we took the show over to there. Uh, Adam and I did a version of it over there where we were going to speak about everything, and then Japanese MMA went by the wayside. And as that happened, there was the resurrection of New Japan and uh, the decline of Noah and lots of other things that were taking place. So we would always try to talk with fervor about what was happening, and we were met with silence and and with some uh, uh with some basically being ignored uh by dave and brian who famously once said well there's nothing happening in japan when when <laughs> fans of our site had asked them and written in and said well why aren't you talking about things and we have used that battle cry kind of ever since and in even when new japan uh started their ascent again we would always make sure to point out well you know all this is great but there's really nothing happening in japan <laughs> So with the way everything went, we 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 always took it uh, as our own personal victories <laughs> that that we'd like to think that we at least tried to, to keep the torch and the hope alive during what were some really dark times, which is what New Japan was really essentially coming out of at that time. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll get into that. This is an, an interesting year to choose because it's kind of the right at the pre not quite the bushy road era but but certainly right at the end of the the yukes area that we're looking at um and wrestling pervaded into japanese general life in the year 2011 as the the spring the big spring sumo tournament uh was cancelled for only the second time in its history because of match fixing um so uh you know a little bit of of work going on in in sumo going on there uh, this was the year that the 3DS was released. Wow. <laughs> the, 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 the headlines here. And, uh, and Mike, it's a running thing, this podcast, that uh, in 23 episodes, uh, not a single one uh, gets, the, gets the reference to the, the top number one single in, in, 20, in each of our respective years. Uh, but in 2011, AKB48 had all top five singles of the entire year. They were inescapable. Uh, they were inescapable to me because I was living here. Um, and uh, right at the top was, was Flying Cat. Yet. There you go. This was before they were dabbling in in wrestling, as, as we talked about on the, on the last episode. With uh, you know, they had they had that drama show that was that was about pro wrestling, and then Hollywood Junior showed up and you know tried harder than everybody else. No, deaf ears. Okay, right. Let's let's, let's move on. Let's move on. But uh, yeah, but I mean, like one of those one of these days, I should watch one of those tofu wrestling shows because you know that they they draw fairly decent crowds by dint of I don't think the wrestling so much as the fact that they have like the pop a bunch idols. of girls, yeah, yeah. The, the, the pop <laughs> idols doing the wrestling, you know. So um, you know, it, it it must be a very interesting thing. They've certainly got the production value behind it, you know. Bizarre. Now these, these, if I recall the, the correctly, and I, I do that by looking online. So these girls were in their, their, their they were late teens, early twenties, uh, and I hope the the girls that were in their early twenties did they, did they, how big of wrestling fans were they, and, and fans of the wrestlers? 
Um, I think like it would like Jurina got popular because she was the only person like Jurina got popular with the wrestling crowd because I think she was the only person that, that really got into wrestling um, and then made friends with Kenny Omega as well which which kind of helped on the, on that front um, and so yeah there, there was like the one thing I did see off the back of like talking about it on the last episode was that I, I went and saw the, the YouTube thing of like the girls training and um, like clearly she was she was the one that had like athletic ability <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason they sang there's all of, yeah 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 right right and like yeah milano collection 80 trying to train these girls it's a <laughs> it's a fascinating thing it's worth it's worth doing a, a youtube rabbit hole on but anyway yeah 2011 as i said this this was the the end of the yukes era uh, in New Japan pro wrestling. And so what you would see over the course of the year is gradually more uh, advertising from Bushy Road on there, which was, I guess, like a precursor to, hey, they're, they're going to buy the company, all because uh, Takaki Kidani was, was good mates with the, the people running Ukes and wanted to get into the wrestling business. So this is kind of like the 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 changing of the guard in a way and the the presentation of the products as well because you know it, it was sort of gato taking taking over control um kind of on the creative end of of the of the business um but uh what were your thoughts on on new japan at the time i guess like we're talking about the start of 2011 um so i mean 2010 new japan um what was doing it for you back then well this is going to sound kind of kind of goofy um for anybody that's listening to this with 2018 or, or further years that are used to, to Gato's success line and, and knowing where the company went. But we, and I say Adam and I, uh, and we were a little trepidatious. Um, not that we thought there would be anything wrong with, with Ghetto as Booker and as foreman of the site, but we were kind of happy with the way that Choshu was transitioning things. And I know that may sound kind of ridiculous now, but I was a wrestling fan and I, and I liked to fight and I liked wrestling. I liked amateur wrestling. I liked boxing. I liked a lot of those things. I like MMA. I didn't like MMA and pro wrestling together. And I was so, so shell shocked, um, at, at Enochism and the rise of MMA in Japan and, the uh, de-emphasis on pro wrestling and the disrespect that the wrestling business, frankly, showed itself in that time. And the, you know, the spiral downward of New Japan. I was a huge Yuji Nagata fan. I'll vote for Yuji Nagata for anyone's Hall of Fame forever. I love Yuji Nagata. He was killed. <laughs> and and he is, his, his you know, uh, crawl back up. Uh, was unfortunate and it was 100% due to him being placed in situations and fights that I didn't like. I was a huge fan of Shinsuke Nakamura as a supernova rookie, as a future star. And to see him go out there with Alexei Ignashov and, and get his eye socket broken and then go face Takayama and they, they do something with Takayama and Nagata at the Tokyo Dome that they didn't do with Nagata and Takayama, which was which was... Takayama brutalized Nakamura. You know, Nagata, it was a one-sided yeah. matchup after he got beat. With, with Nakamura, it was, it was a lot more 50-50. In fact, it was a lot of Takayama's continuing to pour it on him before Nakamura got the win, and I always thought that was weak. And then we had, as I'm sure your episodes have gone through, a lot of disaster area <laughs> that took place, and there was a lot of wasteland. And when Choshu became the man, 
was everything great? No, you know, I was never a big Wataru Inoue fan, but there were at least moves being made where they decided to close ranks. Prince Devitt was, I'm sure we'll talk about during this year, was one of the only foreigners that they really had focused on as far as not, you know, being able to train and, and being there every day. Uh, you know, they, they started to reinvent guys, your Makabe's and your Yano's. They started to get away from Yano being a, a real threat and into a comedy figure. Makabe was reinvented from what he was. Azuka was reinvented. And there seemed to be progress moving forward. And while we didn't really have any problem with Ghetto initially or Jado and Ghetto being placed into the role, we weren't sure how things were going to go. We were obviously pleasantly surprised with the way things went. But even as as 2011 began, you know, we were still a little gun shy. Yes, they're they're moving forward with Tanahashi and, and they're doing different things with Nakamura and things like that. Okada had come back to the States, as we'll talk about, or as, uh, Okada had come back from the States. And, and there seemed to be, you know, there's obviously stars in the eyes on him. We didn't realize how much there were at the time, but things things were okay, but we were still waiting for the banana peel to drop and we were still waiting for something bad to happen. And I, and I hate to say that. And in hindsight, probably we were pretty foolish, but coming out of that era, I mean, I, you know, I was shook up. I really was. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned a lot of the names that, yeah, that, that stood out, uh, on this card. And, you know, one of the things that stands out about the show in general, if you're a a fan of the modern era and the, and the modern sort of post bushy era is that the, I think this is the last of the, I guess, sort of, we can sort of quote unquote call them like the non-canon Wrestle Kingdoms, you yeah. know, where it seems that, you know, we, we had this, this stretch, um, especially after Choshu took over from like 2006 to 2011, where all of our Tokyo Dome shows are kind of like these weird, it's new Japan versus somebody else. Yes, you know, it's New Japan versus All Japan, New Japan versus the Indies, New Japan versus Noah, and New Japan versus TNA, and like this is the the last of those. And I think like after this, you start getting like everything coalesces towards Wrestle Kingdom is the the destination spot. Um, but there's still a little bit of of weirdness about this show. Um, the yeah, that the definitely felt to. It, it felt like weird to me being there. Like I, I was there, I was at this show um, and a lot of it felt strange. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, people that, that the fans around me at least hadn't a clue like who these DNA people were. Um, but uh, only a couple of, a couple of them on, on this show. And, and the first one uh, of the pair was Rob Van Dam, whose first, you know, whose introduction to the Japanese crowd is him going hola Japan, like like he, like he thinks that he's speaking Japanese. He's like hola Japan. <laughs> um, so. In his mind, he may have been <laughs> speaking their language. Um, yeah, he only did like those all Japan tours. Like presumably, he picked nothing up at, at that standpoint. But uh, hey, he he was still better at those press conferences than Jeff Hardy was. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe in other things working against, um, well, both of them, I imagine. But <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to be in Japan when you have Rob Van Damme's proclivities. Um, you know, they're, they're very, very sort of uh, staunchly against uh, certain substances that, that Rob Van Damme enjoys partaking in. 
Um, but uh, yeah, what do you think of Rob Van Dam versus Toriyano? Which I think, like, to a, a New Japan fan and a Japanese New Japan fan, this is most famous mainly because it gives Toriyano like the Toriyano thumbs, and it's really his thing now, far more than than RVD's. Yes, if you wanted to ever point to a like the open door at a point in somebody's career, transition point in their career, I think that's what it was. Because like, you know, Yano as yeah, people will never believe this unless you you, you look. It's like amateur wrestling wise, Yano's very good, mm. and you know the thought of him coming in as a young lion, you know. You got to think of him without that doughy gut and the blonde hair and the fat face and, you know, a little more nose to the grindstone standing alongside your your Nakamura's and your guys like that. You know, he was looked at as a possible threat. Obviously, things didn't work out that way. His 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 work ethic in comparison and not to bash anyone's uh, work ethic, but maybe in comparison to some others. Uh, as far as wanting to further their careers and keep themselves in the shape, that was not his bag. <laughs> he, he as a member of a team, was fine, but he was never going to be somebody you put out right in front. But he, he had some value. What would this man's value be? It would be in the comedic realm. <laughs> and I, I, I can't remember when the YTR uh, uh, started to happen, but it was also around this time where, as, as RVD would chant, RVD. Yano took the YTR and the thumbs. And from there, I can't remember at this point, did he have the sake? I, I can't recall. But that's when it kind of seemed that this was the point where, forget it. We, we you, Yano will never be anything other than what Yano is going to be. And he is now, again, it, Tenzan and Nezuka, I, I doubt we'll spend too much time on that. It was kind of the same way where... You know, Izuka, by this point, he was a little more advanced in his character than Yano was as far as being the the revitalized wild man. Uh, But it was also kind of the same way with Tenzan, where it's just like, okay, this is where these guys are at. And they're going to fulfill a role here in the future. But start working on you, you and your personality a lot more, which is what Yano did. And it was kind of that transitional point. There's nothing to this match whatsoever. Did it go on for too long? Probably. <laughs> it was a basically a hardcore match, but not in the ECW realm, more of the plunder you know, realm. But it really became the thing where it is it effective and exciting and, and five bazillion stars? No, but it was a, a perfect sign of where Yano could continue to go. And I think the genesis of what we ended up, you know, what we have today kind of kind of began there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of the the midway point. Like he's still doing stuff, um, but uh, you know. But at the same time, yeah. A, well, a he, it's still at the point where it's like that. you're going to rely. Like you know, yeah. he, he was still a point where it's like you know, in the the upper half of the card, you can still do something with him as as of now, where it's more, you know, maybe a tag match further down or something like that, or a special occasion like the G one. You know, there were still eyes on him, you know, having a singles match against Rob Van Dam on, on a major show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. It's, it's funny because I was looking through uh, a lot of the New Japan World archives uh, for some different things. And so looking through the 70s and, and watching like uh, Umanosuke Ueda, who was like the, the visual 
kind of reference for Toriano yeah. with like the bleach blonde and whatever. And and kind of, you know, I think in in the way, you know, that was the spot for Yano, you know, where it's like the in in New Japan at least, where it was kind of like the the, the sort of secondary uh you know top heel. You know, it was like Inoki's Inoki's gonna beat the the shit out of Tiger G Singh mainly for the most part. But he might he might he might punch the crap out of him and not clear where to as well. Um, you know, and I think like Toriano to his credit, you know, that that's one thing that he says an, an awful lot, that he credits the fact that he had a long career to the fact that he realized he wasn't going to be a top guy, you know, so he's, you know, he, he had to sort of carve out a niche for himself uh, that, that was underneath, you know, and he, he sort of says his advice to, to young people is, is like recognize when you're you're not going to be a top guy and and yeah. and figure out where where you're best suited you know because not everybody can be like okada or nakamura um get in when get in where you fit in uh, absolutely exactly. and and you know in he <laughs> perfect time for for jado and ghetto to be there as well too not to say that anybody else couldn't have done it because the transition had already started but you have two guys who were so so personality driven and and fascinated by things like ECW and, and and places like that where it was probably the perfect time for him to grow as that type of character there, too, because they had support of, you know, he could turn it to 11 on the Yano scale. And sometimes that wasn't the best. But to try to get that longevity, to try to seal where he was at, it, it really kind of came as the the years, the months and the years went on the, the perfect time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other half of the, the TNA coin here was, was Jeff Hardy. Um, uh. who I remember the, the, it was the people sitting next to me and, and one guy was like, who's that? When he came out and like, his mate was like, oh yeah, he, he was in WWE. <laughs> like, so, so no real familiarity with, with the TNA products, but, uh, Jeff Hardy and Tetsuya Naito and, and like, this was, I think this was a TNA title match, I believe. And um, Naito had had, like, kind of a big year in 2010. Because, like, this was when uh, Naito and Yujiro had, had joined Chaos. And so, like, Naito had split off a little bit from the uh, the, uh, the the core New Japan army or whatever. And, and that set off this this feud with Tanahashi. So, like, a lot of people were, were talking about, like, these, what, he did three or four matches with Tanahashi over, over 2010, um, which were kind of significant for him. And then he'd go on to break away from Chaos and then have, like, a, you know, a little program with, with Nakamura, like the G1 finals, and then, again, that that autumn, and some really good stuff with, with Nakamura as well. Um, but yeah, so 2010, 2011, kind of important for Tetsuya Naito, but uh, like not, not the best start. I think like mainly as well, because I can never forget like the, the opening video package to this match, which was like Jeff Hardy saying he was going to have the best match in Tokyo Dome history, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like, you know, that, that, that is very, very much a, a professional wrestler's hubris, um, in play here. You know, you're transitioning from Yano to Naito. Uh, I think it was, was it 09 or 10's G1, where they kind of put Yano in a position where it was like, okay, this is like your your veteran match challenge series. Let's see how you do and see where you're going to be at. <laughs> and Yano didn't do all that incredibly well. And they would kind of do those things where, like you said, you know, they Naito's year was really, really good. And that's what made this extra disappointing and I can't say that Jeff Hardy was inebriated and in fact 
Dave Meltzer reported and, and had said to me when I questioned it, you know, was he okay? That you no, know, he was he was fine, jet lag and things like that. But from all reports, he was okay. I've heard other people say differently as the years had gone on, and I can't say that he he was or he wasn't. But I, what I do know is is two two weeks um, after the the dome, he pleaded guilty to opiate trafficking for the arrest that he had had a couple years prior, where he was busted with a bunch of Vicodin and somas and steroids and cocaine residue and it was just a mess and and jeff hardy was a mess period you know at that time even if he wasn't in that moment but at the press conference i mean he rambled Uh, i remember adam summers pointing out on the show we did that like he dude seemed to be more concerned with his hat than than uh, than anything else that was going on he talked about wanting to face liger he had no clue who naito was he forgot his name uh, and it was a lot of that guy and it was like, oh, no. And then the match happened. And it was, oh, no. And it wasn't, and I think, and I don't know how it was in the crowd. Great time to ask since you were in it. Like, I remember getting the feeling that people were disappointed. Nobody blamed it on Naito. But this was supposed to be a showcase. This was a match against the, the TNA champion. And it ended up just being like 12 or 13 minutes of some stuff, uh, a botched Jeff Hardy. Uh, uh, I, th- I think it was a, a leapfrog. leapfrog yeah. yeah. And just a, and just a big flat mess. And I don't know how was the crowd because that's how we always took it. And maybe we were just kind of hopefully defending Naito too much, but it never felt like at any point, no one blamed Naito for, for that performance. And, and thankfully that was the case. Yeah. And it's, you know, watching the, the match again, I watched it, like yesterday it was i mean outside of like the the leapfrog that there, there isn't anything that that says this is a disaster it's just like yeah. two people that are on like different pages and jeff hardy who's you know clearly hurting and um like tight like blown up like you see it in his face that he's pretty tired like three four minutes in and um yeah i mean just i remember in the crowd it was just silence it was just complete silence it was like you know it was the look at your phone match, you know, kind of not many people had smartphones at the time, but it, it was kind of like the, the look at your phone kind of match. And, um, yeah, just, just, just a, a real, real shame. Um, but you know, Naito would get, would get back on track and, uh, we wouldn't see Jeff Hardy again in the country. I mean, and go and tell WWE again, you know? No, that's right. And, and, you know, it just, uh, it get, you know, we're Goto slipped a few years earlier with Mudo. It was not the best performance. And Okada, a year later, you know, it was with Yoshihashi. It was not the the best debut. And, you know, for this to be the, you know, Naito is one of the examples of just sometimes the breakout doesn't happen when, when you hope it does. But, <laughs> again, it was more due to opponent on, on, on that day. And, yeah, like I said, because, yeah, Jeff Hardy was never back in Japan again after that. And that, that TNA relationship, which was never – the best to, to begin with, uh, thankfully started to go away as well. It was always amazing to me that, that they seemed to always new Japan always had a better relationship with Jeremy Borash personally than the rest of the company. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was around a lot, wasn't he? But Jeff, Jarrett, so, yeah, he always was there doing the, uh, the English, uh, announcing and things like that. So even if there really were no TNA guys there, let's have JB come and do the English announcing. Yeah. Yeah, sure. The hardest working man in, <laughs> in professional wrestling. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the last sort of vestiges of that TNA relationship was, of course, Kazuchika Okada. 
And, you know, one thing I wanted to say, like, Okada and Goto against, um, you know, Sugiura and, and Takeyama here. Like, uh, you know, the, the fun what if would be, what do you think would happen, Mike, if the Okada that we had in on this show was the Okada that was there for good? They, they, they didn't send him back out to America for another year and just went, right, you know, Kazuchika Okada's back. Here he is. Like, how do you think... He would be now. You know, where would he be now? It, it wouldn't be the same, you know, because I think he needed to have that big debut with the with the badly blonde hair at the time. The dye job wasn't as good the next year. I mean, he, I think, needed to have that spectacular, you know, uh, uh, arrival and then failure, essentially. And then to be you know, having to work his way up because he has never stopped working. Not to say that his work ethic before that was poor, but... Rainmaker Okada and what he had to scoop up and continue with then, if it wasn't for that failure, if it wasn't for those slip ups and, and having to, to fight from the bottom when, you know, you're supposed to be the guy and all these you're literally gold is supposed to fall. Money is supposed to fall on top of you. And it didn't. And you have to kind of suffer and work your way back up. I think he needed that to get the Okada that we have today. I don't think the Okada with with the black boots and the black hair that came back and suplex Takayama, uh, the, you know, and led to this tag match. I don't know if he would have been able to break out. I don't know if he would have been allowed to break out because he would have just been rivaling everyone else at the time. Goto, who obviously placed higher on the Ascension scale. He was already, you know, quite established. Uh, Nakamura and Tanahashi, obviously, uh, where they were at. And all of the other names in the mix, I think it would have been I think it would have been tough. And the talent and the athleticism, yeah, he would have been a champion. He would have been in the mix. He would have probably been main eventing Tokyo Domes. But I just don't know if it would have been the same. It just I don't think it would have been the same. I think he needed to have that, you know, that that big spectacular fail and, and then the, to work his way back up. But it is interesting to, to see, wonder where he would have been at or, or what transition we would have gotten. Yeah, I mean, just like the presentation of, of that character just seems just so wonderfully or frightfully um, generic, you know, like down to like the, the really badly thought out goatee. You know, is it, is it a good deal smaller than, than when he came back as, you know, he's wearing like these these black baggy shorts, you know. And he looks he looks like Goto Goto's like best mate. You know, yeah, he's rocking the, the three quarter length T shirt yeah. with the New Japan logo that like like that's straight out of the past. It's like, sure. yeah, I mean it's just like yeah, it's like the kid that, that went to to middle school, uh, you know, in eighth grade. And then, you know, with, with one style, then he goes away for the summer, comes back and, and as a freshman in, in high school with a completely different style. And, you know, it was actually one for the better, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, even then, I mean, we're doing sort of next next episode's work for us. But like when he first comes back, you know, I mean, that, like you said, the, the bad die job, you know, he it took like a couple of months to really nail down like the, the Raymaker look, I think, you know, it, it was like that that first Okada that comes out, he does look like, uh, you know, like a high school kid coming out at first. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he managed to get that stuff down path very, very quickly. Um, you know, and the the interesting he goes uh, he goes off to America again after this doesn't really get used very much, and you know he he said you know that that with that extra time you know he was going to the gym an awful lot you know he came back with with a lot of extra weight, um, and he just had enough time to think about 
what he wanted to do and kind of hone that persona and hone that character. Um, and it's interesting to sort of think about like, you know, what those guys did um, with that extra time when they were killing time between all of like these mammoth long impact tapings. Um, Tetsuya Naito said that Tetsuya Naito's nickname in TNA was good Naito um, because they'd have like these mammoth taping sessions. And like, I think he said that the show would start at, at five or six, but like the call time was 12. So there was nothing to do. So he'd just go to sleep and everybody called him good night. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he, he sort of said for, for the rest of the time, he'd, he'd go to like um, uh, Bubba Ray Dudley's dojo or the, the Dudley boys, whatever their thing is, their team 3d dojo or whatever. Um, and he, he wrote about this in, in his book that, that they'd have like these, these little matches and then afterwards um, they'd sit down and Barbara Dudley would, would look at tape and he'd say things. And like Tetsuya Naito said in his book, he'd watch the tape and then say things. I have no idea what he said. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, Bubba Ray Dudley. The, the, yes, the, the man who gave me the, the he and Devon, the bouncing headbutt. My, my Tokyo Dome memories, well, that will always be one of them. Um, I don't know if they're great, but it will always be one of them. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. It's um the the match that that I picked out as as my highlight. It was definitely the match of the night on the show, you know. And, and um, I can't think looking back, you know, Kojima and Tanahashi has its has its definite highlights. But uh, Kota Ibushi and Prince Devitt, and like they were really kind of riding high, and and the sort of the you know the 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 pet of a lot a lot of sort of younger fans and and more sort of hip knowledgeable um new japan fans you know that the hype was on like prince devitt and um koji Ibushi at the time and like that was because this was coming off like the autumn when you had like the golden Ro um the golden lovers and apollo gogo like feud um and that tag match in in ryogoku that that october which was the first was so awesome yeah. <laughs> It was the the Tokyo Sports as as has hadn't before and have never since awarded like a junior heavyweight tag match like the the match of the year uh, award, um, but uh, yeah, so like everybody was was looking towards this. It's interesting though, like what their partners were doing at the time, you know, because it's like here's okay, we want to do Kotobushi and Prince Devitt in the singles match. What do we do with Taguchi and Kenny? I'll pick <laughs> Kenny with. Tai Chi, you know. Like. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I that I that was one thing. Prince Devitt was so transcendent. I mean, he really was. I don't know if that's the right word, but like you know, you, your junior heavyweights get slotted, and I mean, like it, in a way, just because they we're at the tail end of him at that point, being the and he was a Choshu guy, being a great example of. I was never a big fan of his, but he was a dominant junior heavyweight. You go through the junior heavyweight ranks. You give it up, you either lose the title, you give it up, you step up to the heavy ranks, and there you go. And Devitt was, I don't know, the first guy, but first guy in a long time where he wasn't anywhere close to the size of any of the New Japan heavyweights, you know, the, the, your true, your Nakanishi type of heavyweights and things like that. But you could look at him and you saw him work and you looked at the body and you saw those, like, there were some Dynamite Kid, obviously, parallels and things like that that was like, oh, my God. You know, this guy's a star and he radiated stardom and Kodo Bushi at that point 
because of his style, I didn't get it with as much, but people like Adam most certainly did. And his charisma obviously was off the charts. I just was not buying into him as much yet because of the moves. And there were things that he would do and there were ways that he would sell that, which was not at all, uh, which would, would drive me a little bit too nuts. But you could see where they were going that, that next step. I mean, where we are at right now with your, or where the Ospreys and where those types of people, you know, Hiromu Takahashi, where those men have taken it. Like to me, Devin Nabushi in the new Japan realm. I mean, they were the ones who completely kicked open that door, busted open that door and, and continued to take it in a new direction because they were great junior heavyweights. I mean, they were really great matches, but still your, your Rocky Romero's, your, your Davey Richards, I mean, still more mat base, and even your guys who flew around, they didn't fly around in the way that Kota Ibushi and Prince Devitt could. And and Devitt just was, I mean, he was phenomenal, and, and still obviously is phenomenal to, to this day, and, and Kota Ibushi the same way. And yeah, the tag match that they had had before that, it was, it was one of those things at the Dome, too, where the dome is always very quiet or has traditionally been very quiet for junior heavyweights. This is why you'd have the junior heavyweight tag match. You know, they would almost just kind of throw their hands up and go, okay, we're going to have a four away with the four teams that we have put at the beginning of the card. Boom. There you go. And the junior heavyweight title match, no matter how good the people were in it, wouldn't necessarily, I, I, I believe get the respect that it deserves with its slotting on the, on the card. There would be other matches that they would put, you know, ahead of that and not really slot it in a way where I think it, it stood out the way that it should have. And I think that match with David Nabushi, I mean, it was a awesome example of you can take the IWGP junior heavyweight championship if you want, and you probably won't, but you can make it the semi main event or the main event on a show. And, you'll have people buying in at the end because that's how good they are. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to your point, this, this is the point that, that, um, that I asked Rocky about, and then, you know, Rocky made some, some good comments in, in the book, but it's kind of the, the sort of quietness for, for junior heavyweight matches around this time is, is mainly a result of like, the lack of visibility that the, the product had, right? And so the, because they only had... You know, if, unless you had satellite TV, then you were watching like the the World Pro Wrestling uh, TV Asahi show for like for thirty minutes, like two a.m. two a.m. So uh, of course, like that that was all these really you know clear, heavily clipped uh, heavyweight matches, and so the junior heavyweights didn't get on TV like at all. Um, so it was really a lot of like unfamiliarity with with those guys, and I think like that's what. Um, sort of cause them well okay let's go balls to the wall and have like these these really really athletic uh, spectacular kind of matches you know and for this for that point for the point in the show that, that it came on um, and for the you know for what mileage they got and it is kind of insane you know and like looking bad at it you know, I think I think if you had like the the sort of skeptical eye on it, then then you would go, oh, that's that's move, 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 move. But um, it was also really, really phenomenal, and especially at that point for the live crowd, like it it was exactly what that show needed was was something really, really ex- spectacular, and and a lot of this stuff was spectacular. You know, I kind of think like the the sequence that did it for me was like the like Ibushi doing the the standing corkscrew and then doing the the moonsault. And Devitt rolls out the way, and he just goes straight into another moonsault, like yes. a double moonsault. Yeah, 
um, which just went, you know, everybody from that point was like, oh, okay, here we go, you know, and then the the finish is just insane as well. You know, the, the... I, I, I saw on Coliseum video my first uh, uh, being able to see, first time being able to see like Tiger Mask was on Coliseum video on the WWF stuff when they had, you know, they, I forget, don't ask me which ones it was, but they, you know, had the matches with the Cobra and, you know, a couple of the matches from Madison Square Garden and, you know, I hear, a, you know, talk to people and hear stories about people who were there and who saw that stuff. And it was like revolutionary and it was just eye opening. And I could see how, you know, again, in the same sort of way that people would go back and, and at the time watching Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith and, and, and those types of guys and that style. It must have been the same way, probably for a whole new generation of fans that maybe some of the ones who weren't aware of Dragon Gate and some, you know, some of the other promotions that were out there were more strictly you know, New Japan fans or, or more traditional wrestling fans got their their eyes opened up because the one thing, too, is it was not spot fest extraordinaire or anything like that. Uh, it was it, it felt like these moves were still taking place in an athletic contest. There was a little bit of can you top this? But the can you top this was still it still at least felt to me like it was in the competition of winning that title belt. You know what I mean? If that sounds completely ridiculous, but it wasn't, you know, sometimes we we sit back and we and it's OK. You know, we 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 are happy at the Cirque du Soleil performance and, 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 and you know, the, the crazed performance. It's like, well, that was satisfying, you know, and it was great. What a what a show. But you don't really think of it as an athletic competition. This was still in an athletic competition. And that's where that's where I think Devitt, too more than anybody else as a junior heavyweight of, of, of modern times, got it better than anyone else. He got the balance of entertain and the wrestling almost better than anyone, you know, like bringing up a guy like a Davy Richards. He could never really balance that out. His wrestling was going to be the wrestling, but the personality wasn't going to be there. Tiger mask four. I mean, there have been guys, you know, Minoru Tanaka as heat. I mean, and two were coming out of that era too with, you know, as far as, you know, guys where Tiger Mask was not a flying Tiger Mask. <laughs> he was a leg lock Tiger Mask. Minoru Tanaka, same way. They tried with the Heat character. It was trying to do a reinvention. They didn't really catch on. But he was also a guy that was not super spectacular and doing a lot of flying. I mean, these this was I'm trying to think of who else was around at that time as we kind of led into this that were that were so fun to watch and, and so so eye opening on the on, on the junior scene. Yeah, you're you're right. You know, and and this word, I mean, it speaks to the fact that this era of the best of the super juniors, it, it, it was so many outsiders sort of coming in, and you know, that's why you had like your Kotobushi's, your Kenny Omegas coming in from from DDT, um, you know, because I mean, homegrown juniors at this time, you couldn't really, yeah, you can't really think of many. You know, it, yeah, it was it, it almost seemed like it was. Easier for them to go to look at Nosawa or to, to let's just to yeah. say the Liger jump on the phone and get somebody, you know, than it was to develop anybody homegrown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, even Taguchi too, as as you know, the the Russell land, and I could be misremembering this, but I I remember almost like with Taguchi, as soon as he was he was going to uh, the Devitt feud obviously probably didn't go the way they expected it to and that I Taguchi was probably going to get a lot more out of that and it always seemed like they were kind of waiting because you couldn't pull the trigger and do anything with Devitt and you didn't want to take any heat off Devitt to put Taguchi over and by the time it happened it was way too late but 
it, it almost seemed like at that time they were almost waiting on Taguchi to gain weight and get out of there and, and move up to heavyweight. And it just seemed to be like that's that was kind of the case. And I may be misreading that, but it, it never seemed like him as junior heavyweight ace or anything was really going to be the case until it was, you know, well, maybe he'll break out from David and win the title from him and it'll be his division. And that never ended up happening. It just seemed like early on it was they seemed to be looking at him already in the future in the heavyweight division. Yeah, there was there was a period period here where like Taguchi was huge. You know, and like he was, he was really really big for a time. You know, and, and you could certainly see him uh, moving up. And it, it might have been yeah around sort of 2012 when they were thinking that you know when he did win uh, the BOSJ. But then like. You're right. I think they, they they wanted more out of Taguchi, or they wanted to go to Taguchi and Debit a lot earlier. You know, in in 2013, but Taguchi wound up getting hurt. If you remember, you know, I think like the the whole plan was for best of the super juniors to boil down to Debit versus Taguchi, and and to do that sort of payoff there. Um, but that that wasn't to be, you know. And I think like after that, it was a case of Ryusuke Taguchi kind of seeing seeing everything through Toriano's eyes where it's like, you know, sort of timing wise and, and where I am, you know, I've, I've got to find a spot that that's best for me long term. And uh, dancing, Russell land, Gucci. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The coach. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, what else on the, on this card caught your eye in particular? Uh, well, you know, we didn't really talk about it too much as we talked about just Okada, but like it, it was a reminder of how, Great Takashi Sugiura, I believe, was at the time. Uh, I was never uh, Takayama. I always had issues with Takayama and Suzuki as a team, and uh, but Takashi Sugiura, I thought was fantastic, and Hiroki Goto at that time too. You know, uh, as time has gone on, Hiroki Goto kind of gets dismissed a little bit, I think, by by fans. And and no, he was not Nakamura, and no, he was not Tanahashi, and no, he was not Okada. Very few people are. He just happened to come along at a time where those other guys were there. And I always kind of look at him sometimes with a with a Tenzan uh, look where, yeah, he, he wasn't, you know, he was the ugly duckling. He wasn't Chono and Muda and Hashimoto and, and, and you know, Suzuki and pick your guys. But, man, what a guy to have around. <laughs> and when he was good, he was very good. And, I, again, I thought that match – that match I thought was it was very very good and Igoto at the time was just again in shape uh, sharp you know and still yes he never really kind of hit those hit those levels but he was a guy that I just think that you know it, it, it uh, just a a great you need guys like that and obviously a great supporting player who you could slide into the top six mix and feel good about it and not miss a beat. You know, I, I, I was always probably more of a fan of him than, than some, but I always thought at this time too, and, you know, looking back and seeing, you know, especially the way his body was and, and how there was still that, that, you know, that young zest behind him that he's, you know, he's going to be a, a, a true generational player that, that, I don't know, that, that seemed to come out in that match with me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting that that match that, that Okada winds up getting the, the Goto treatment. Um, yeah, where like the the last couple of years we've we've looked at Goto, it's been the the the, the fierce defiant warrior gets his gets his like moment by like paring out of something, um, and then immediately losing. You know, like the the Muto match where he he 
takes like three shining wizards and kicks out and everybody's like, it's not finished it's not finished he's like oh it's finished <laughs> yeah, and Sigura as well. And like, I think uh, Sigura gets in with a, an Olympic time we were talking about in the last episode. And like, Goto kicks out a one, and everybody goes like nuts. It's like Goto's kicked out a one, and then like, and Kalog, oh, it's finished. You know, it's like well, it's his the same timing thing, yeah. was was mm. just so awful in that. Well, at some point there were going to have to be an expansion of title defenses of any kind, but especially of the IWGP Heavyweight Championship mm. since you know they didn't have as many belts at that time. Yeah. And it's like you're going to have to defend the belt more, which means guys are going to have to lose and you're going to have to come up with reasons for, for different matches. And it just happened to be the time where, you know, Goto was somebody had to take more L's than others. And Goto was that guy, which he there became, I mean, Mr. Spectacular Failure. I don't know if anyone had ever had because he had five, six or I mean, it was seven like title matches. I'd have to go back and look. In relatively short order over the span of a couple years where it's like, is he the first guy to drop this many in a row, <laughs> you know, over such a short period of time? And I think we didn't we did look at that where it was like because of the way the title was defended. I know for sure he lost the most in a in, in the shortest period of time. I'm just not sure over what what span it was. Yeah, I, I like that was the big thing when Goto lost the last challenge he had against Okada and then. You know when the underwent the shift to chaos. You know I, th- I think like the part of the build was that um, you know that the, there hasn't been and any other anybody else that has challenged this this number of times and still lost. You know, um, so you know poor poor Goto. But like you get like the the feeling here as well where like um, Okada. So I think Okada gets uh, takes uh, something very very lumpy from Takayama and kicks out. And then moments later, it's like the Everest German then loses, you know. Um, so perhaps, like, you know, I can't help but think had Okada not been the Rainmaker, he would have been another Koto, you know. Um, and I remember thinking, there, too, you know? I never liked that, too, because Okada came back. He, he, he attacked him, you know, a couple of weeks before to set the, the match up or about a week and a half before to set the match up as a surprise and, and, and suplex Takayama. And it was like, what would have been the harm at this point with Takayama? Because you couldn't beat Sugiera with Okada. You couldn't you couldn't beat Sugiera with Goto, frankly. I mean, if you look at this from Noah's perspective, and again, Sugiera at that time was, and still, I mean, he's one of the most underrated guys of that era of all time to me. If he was a couple inches bigger, he would have been a much, much bigger star, I guess. That's the only thing that may have held him back and the obvious, you know, falling of, uh, of Noah. But... Takayama at that point was not a protected figure, should not have really been a protected figure and, 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 and wasn't. But they still like gave him the veteran nod over Okada and Okada still needs to, to, to continue to fight because, you know, he's still just that that kid that's going to be sent back to 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 North America again. And it was like, you know, that probably would have been a, a perfect time to get some steam on Okada to go ahead and do that and send him back out of the country because then he'd have that little Duke. And I, I don't know. I always thought that was, that's one of those things that it, that's not how traditional Japanese wrestling works, but every once in a while, I thought that that would have been a good time to go ahead and kind of pull that trigger there. Yeah. But uh, it all turned out for the better. Yeah. It did, didn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, I'll, I'll just shut up because they seem okay. to know what they were doing. <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Mike. And, um, as we get out of here, this episode, as we said, we, we pre-record these, uh, up the wazoo. So this is, this is going out in 
the middle of November. I want to say November 15th or something like that. It goes up on, on post wrestling. Um, so with that in mind, uh, what do you have or what would you like to, to plug into the future here? It, it really hurts my feelings. We didn't get to talk about the epic Togi Makabe Masato Tanaka feud that finally ended. That never oh, seemed. That was, yeah. Yeah, didn't they actually? What, didn't they call like the? I can't remember too, and I'm trying to remember because I, I watched it. Deep sleep to lose. Deep, no, deep sleep oh, to no, lose was. Deep uh, sleep to lose. That was uh, Farley, wasn't it? Izuka um, and Tenzan. Izuka and Tenzan. There you go. Because yeah, they had to choke oh. each other out for the win. There, it was uh, it the, was the never-ending something battle. No or, exhaust or something. Like yeah, exhaust or lose or whatever it was like. Yeah, I'm exhausted <laughs> of this feud. My it's God, drove me crazy now. Like, <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm gonna look it up on on New Japan World right now. <laughs> The absolute exhaust. There it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely exhausted. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was uh, better left than said. But that was it. People look at that was the semi-main event. Well, we like to look at it. It was. It was the buffer from Nakamura and Go and Tanahashi and, and Kojima. So not exactly the semi-main there. But uh, you know, probably is if it's the middle of November. Uh, we're, 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 I'm sure it's Survivor Series season and Evolution season and many other seasons that can be covered over at WrestlingObserver.com slash F4WOnline.com. Uh, yes, we are the long-distance American cousins uh, for you guys up there at, at the Post. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what else I can add there. Wrestling Observer Live is a show that I do with Brian Alvarez every single day, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, 6 p.m. on Sundays, Saturday. They're usually replay shows. Sometimes we, we will come up with a live one there. But uh, that's what I do mostly. Uh, when I can get Adam Summers to do a show and our, our times coordinate, we talk uh, mostly about Japanese wrestling, uh, primarily about New Japan, but we love to, to, to take the tour as well, too, uh, and talk a little a little everything. But uh, th- those shows are, are kind of sparse anymore with what we got going on, so... Uh, Wrestling Observer Live is is pretty much the the place you can get me and any other place where people will be nice enough to let me on their podcast. Awesome, wonderful, wonderful. So uh, you can also, of course, get Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, where books are sold, uh, most probably Amazon, or you can reach out directly to me on Twitter at ReasonJP. Next time, we're going to be looking at 2012, and Sean Radigan from PW Torch is going to be hopping on uh, to chat about that show. Um, And until then, take care. Thanks very much.